Today my guest is photographer and writer Tom Griggs. He's my first guest from the Latin American region, even though technically he's not Latin American. But it was lovely to talk to another expat artist and also start to connect with some people in the Latin American arts culture. And we talked about things like juries, because he's been a juror for many competitions, being an expat artist, which is nice for me to be able to relate to because I also am that, and how to use text and image, because that's one of those weird things that we all sort of nebulously try to do throughout our careers, and he seems to have done it very well because he has a number of books out utilizing both text and image and how to take very personal family stories and turn them into approachable and engaging artwork. The Wise Fool podcast with me, Matthew Doles, as your host, is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Tom Griggs. Now, I've noticed that you, your history, you started off in Connecticut. I'm not sure if you were born there, but that's a, that was some of the first education stuff that you're listed on your CV. So what was your childhood like? How did you get to being creative? Was it parents, some schooling, some what? Like how, what led you down the creative path? So I, I grew up in Minnesota, did an undergraduate career in Connecticut, and then went to art school afterwards in Boston. My first experiences with photography would be when I was around 27, 28. So I was relatively late to photography. I and mean, we can back it up from there if you'd like. But from there, I was taking painting classes at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston. Next door at the Museum of Fine Arts, they had an exhibit by F. Holland Day, an incredibly <laughs> maybe uh, mediocre is a, a generous term there, photographer. And his, the compressed tonality of his prints really impressed me. It had an aesthetic connection with my painting. And I took a couple of darkroom classes. I was never somebody who was interested in the magic of the darkroom. I never felt it. It's not really a passion of mine or an interest. But to start taking photography classes at the, the college, that's where you begin. And so I started playing around with, the, with my prints and starting to try to echo the, the tonalities that I found in the F. Holland Day prints. And I think I understood photography from the beginning, not as document or or recording device, but in, as an expressive medium. And so I, I really liked manipulating what I could with the levers that I had in the dark room. So I, I had those first few classes there at MassArt, and then I was still painting. But when I moved out of the school and was working in my own studio, I started to feel isolated, burnt out, all of the things that I had at the, the university, community, critiques, uh, great library, I lost. And so I, I got to a point where I was feeling that I was creating artistic problems and solving them by myself in this very closed circuit, maybe with some input from a few friends. 
it was very isolating. And photography and kind of drawing on those initial classes at MassArt suddenly seemed like a way to live a much more contemporary life out in the world, being in the world, making images, traveling, being in communities, having experiences. And that's what drew me into photography was this idea of it being the pace of contemporary life, being able to create and be with people and not needing to live a somewhat monkish existence alone in a studio. Most of the good painters I know live that life of extreme dedication. And it just wasn't for me. And from there, I ended up back at MassArt. Somewhat ironically, I did a pretty wide grad school hunt and decided that where I'd taken those initial classes would actually be the best place for me for, for graduate school. And I've been dedicated to photography since then, but have also moved writing into some of my projects. All right. So now what do you do today to make a living? So are you doing editorial photography? Are you doing uh, writing? What's your sort of day-to-day income? Mostly online teaching. I think that's the biggest part of the pie. I think that, you know, somebody at some point early on told me that photographers essentially fall into three categories in terms of making a living, especially within fine arts photography, which is my world, which would be they teach, they were born rich, or they work with properties. And so I, I took the latter path at first. I, I had a, a construction company, bought and rehabbed a property in Philadelphia. I have a place in Medellin, Colombia. And the rent from those properties underwrites some of my decision-making in terms of teaching. So I, I take jobs that I'm interested in and the money obviously it helps, but it, I'm not completely dependent on it. Um, I do some editorial work, not very much. If somebody calls me, happy to do it, but I don't tend to seek it out very much. And wh- where are you living currently? I'm currently in Mexico City. Uh, I spent most of the last decade in Medellin, Colombia. And I came here last January with an idea of establishing kind of a second beachhead in Latin America. This is along with Buenos Aires in Sao Paulo, one of the big centers of photography in Latin America. So a lot of work opportunities, great community, great resources, great institutions. And Medellin is a great city, but it's quite small in all of those terms. And after 10 years there, you know, professionally, a good moment for a change. Bogota has a much more lively photography world and much more infrastructure. But I was ready for a change. And so I came here last January and began investigating ideas of work. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and I've kind of been here since. And in some ways, it's kind of just extended the process of integrating myself here and figuring out if it's going to work or not. But it's been a good place to be in the meantime. All right. One of the things, when I look through your CV, one of the things that, that, and quite honestly, this is probably how I found you in the first place, is the doing, being a juror. Uh, You've been, it looks through your CV on a a number of different, being quote unquote like a juror or a nominator, basically the, the, the gatekeeper for the ability to like win awards or, or, you know, receive competitions or grants, I would assume it looks like some of them are grants. Um, I'm fascinated with that whole process. Uh, you know, I've been on the juries, but all my, the things I've been juries on are nothing there. Nobody would know, but the ones you're on are pretty big. 
Um, so like, how did you even get on a, these juries? First of all, like who contacted you? How, why? Um, and then walk me through a little bit of the process, choose any one of them and sort of tell me a little bit about the, the process of being a juror. Yeah. So I had a moment where I switched over a little bit. I mean, I, I'm a photographer first and foremost, and work on my own projects. And then when I began teaching at the university in in Colombia, which is a pretty interesting place, the the profile of the av- average student is like the highest performing students from the lower economic areas of Medellin. And so I started working there and had a lot of you know, passionate students, solid students, students who wanted to continue with photography, but they were taking my classes with, you know, borrowed cell phones, old broken SLRs. And so, you know, I'm the type of person I can kind of agonize over a restaurant menu, but make kind of whimsical, large scale life decisions. And I thought, you know, I'm going to start a, you know, essentially an NGO, a nonprofit and see if I can do some fundraising for helping these kids out with some equipment. And that led to a project called Phototazo, which is no longer active as an online site, but for you know, all, the better part of the last decade was active. I did a lot of interviews, essay writing, kind of project releases, and the site served as the engine for the nonprofit. It would attract readers and then a certain percent would donate, you know, whatever they would care to for equipment purchases for nominated grant students, largely from the university I was teaching at in Medellin, but also there were others, all of them from within Colombia. But the the site gained enough readership that I started to get some contacts and some invitations to take part on the other side of the table, that is to say, as a juror invited to take part in kind of nominating processes. And that's how that transition happened. So as far as who contacted me, if you want to pick one off a CV, we could talk through that particular process. But, but generally, I think people found me through Phototazo and that site. It would be Photo Lucida would be the big one that I, but also it seems like it's the one that you seem to have done the most. I think the woman's name was Audrey Osborne. She's no longer with the or, their organization, but she was the person who was making those invitations. And she just wrote me out of the blue and invited me to take part one year. And it's a quite a bit of work. I mean, there's a, a, pre, a group of pre-screening jurors, which I don't do, but those people look at you know, all of the applications and then they send a selection of 200 portfolios to the jurors for the final round, which is what I do. And they, they cut it down to 50. And it is quite a lot of work and I do it every year. You know, I I go through the 200 and I don't think, to be honest, all of the jurors do that. So they keep inviting me back. I think in part because I I do my job when they ask me to do it. And I also try to comment on work from the people. They they give you an option to leave some comments. So I I take it seriously and I, I find it's a way for me to keep up on trends and tendencies in photography, find some new interesting work I probably wouldn't come across otherwise. But just by being a faithful juror and, and, and doing the work, they, they seem to keep inviting me back for it. So I'm trying to think of some space in which I'm a nominator or a juror that did not come out of essentially being an editor or blogger. 
And I, I can't think of one. I'm pretty sure they all came from there. Maybe a couple local competitions in Columbia came from my being a professor at the university, but. Okay, wait, I've got to ask a question because I think you skipped over it somehow, or I let you skip over it. How did you get from Connecticut and mass art to Columbia in the first place? Like most expats in Columbia for a relationship. So I, I met a woman at an arts residency in New York. She's a classical pianist and we were married for about 10 years and then kind of amicably moved on our own paths a couple of years ago. And she, I chose a person, not a place. She was originally from Medellin and had left for a summer with an opportunity to take classes in the United States and ended up staying for 10 years and had always had a, a very strong draw to going back to Medellin. So we got married and she won a competition for a full-time teaching position at the, the university where I taught. And then I got a grant for a year to go down and teach at the same university. So we went down for, we gave ourselves at least two years. Then the idea was to sit down once a year with a bottle of wine and make big life decisions. And at a certain point, it just became an excuse to drink bottles of wine because we were pretty happy and liked being there. And I think professionally, it offered me a number of advantages and opportunities. I, I said earlier that the it's a pretty small photo world there. And so in one way that kind of circumscribes your your experience within photography. But on another level, I think one of the other reasons that people have reached out for my opinion about work from the area or you know to to invite me to be a juror is that I do have a knowledge of photography from that part of the world an experience of looking at it that I think places in Europe and the United States are interested in. I don't think if I had started the same nonprofit in you know, Minnesota that I would be invited to the same opportunity. So it's, it's sort of that, that role of being a bridge between two worlds that people, people are interested in. Phototazo for a while, went through a few iterations, but the very last one was to provide an English language platform for looking at Latin American photography. Like that was, that. I mean, there's so many sites that did the same thing at a certain point. I, I started to think about like, what's really the reason to continue doing this? And that seemed to be a role I could play would be, you know, I had a number of conversations with curators, editors, people interested in Latin American photography, but not knowing where to go to in a way that it would be easy for them to look at work. Individual sites would be hard to find or in Spanish or not, not working or magazines and blogs would cover quite a bit of work, but generally be in Spanish. My last version of the site tended to focus on Latin American work with writing in English. Well, I mean, I've noticed that even through this podcast, because like when I want a guest, like I could find some amazing guests in God knows where, you know, Timbuktu, but if they don't speak English, I can't really do it with them. And so like, I feel like there's this sort of, uh, it sounds really bad to say, but like a barrier to the, the, like the pre, the central art industry, which seems to be English speaking, whether it's in Europe or the Americas, um, that a lot of places and people, uh, have a lack of ability to get engaged with be simply because of a language barrier. You know, like there are lots of people I can't talk to, and I'm sure there are lots of people who are amazing 
that make work in Latin America or South America, and they can't sort of connect with the quote unquote, sort of the central art world that's English speaking. Yeah, I think that's really true. And to cover some ground, I think you've covered with guests, social capital is the coin of the realm, right? So if you can't speak English, it really cuts down your ability to interact with power centers in the photography world. And it's unfortunate, but it, it's, it's part of the reality of the situation. And I think that was another interest with Fototazo as a nonprofit was to try to level the playing field a little bit. And so these students that I would bring into the program would get a grant camera, but they'd also be matched with two mentors in other parts of the world that would comment on their photography. And we started doing trips. We did a trip with, I think, 10 students to the United States and have done a couple trips to Mexico to get them a little bit more social capital, meeting photographers, getting people interested in their work. And, I, you know, also just trying to force them, you know, if, if they're going to choose their paths forward to have a lot more information with which to make those decisions and to have as broad of horizons as they, they could have to make those decisions. And so trying to push them a little bit with English, trying to get them in contact with people was part of the, the kind of experiment of, of those grants. But yeah, I mean, it's crucial. It's, it's so, I mean, not just for everything online that you can access, you know, these days, all the Zoom lectures and conferences, all the online kind of archives and podcasts, podcasts, exactly. And so that's, it's, it's important. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Being an expat, because like, it's kind of hard because, okay. Like, so I, I was an expat in the United Arab Emirates and I'm now an expat in Prague and as much as like what my impression, right? So like my idea of being an expat, I would be this exotic American with all this education and background and blah, 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 great CV. And I'd roll in there and they would love me and they would want to, you know, engage with me. Absolute bullshit. They want nothing to do with me. They see me as an outsider. I'm an interloper. They like that whole romantic idea of being an expat and rolling into a foreign country and somehow being like the top, the big top of the heap, I find to be absolute bullshit. What was your experiences with that? <laughs> I, I would say less so. I actually found, especially at least in Colombia, I mean, Colombia, for its political history, was cut off from the rest of the world for a long time, obviously. And what that meant for arts education were these very closed circuits. So professors taught students who became the professors who taught students who became the professors. And the information was very closed. And I think there was actually, <laughs> it is what it is, but it, there was a bit of, okay, this is a new guy. He, he's got a different outlook he's got a different take on things he has a different educational background he, he's at least at that point enough spanish to get by some of my students from that era still make fun of me about how they used to have to get together after my classes and figure, you know piece together what i was saying because i arrived 11 years ago with pretty basic spanish <laughs> but i actually at least within colombia and this might relate to some of its larger cultural 
inclinations towards the United States. I, I did actually find it to be an advantage. Mexico have a much smaller, smaller period of time to draw on. And I have a sense that it's a lot less currency here, kind of having a, a CV littered with you know, an American education and kind of professional experience. Mexico has a much stronger scene, a much stronger photo world. And to kind of backtrack a little bit to our last question, or maybe the lead into this question, there is you know, some connection with a, the outer photo world and a participation in that world. But there's also a very self-sufficient world here. It doesn't depend on or necessarily need to take part in a, a broader world. And it has its own dynamics, its own chiefs and followers, its own incredible institutions, its own pettiness. So it's, I mean, it's, it is both participant in and very much removed from the broader photography world. And so I think, yeah, tracking the broader kind of cultural relationship to the outside world, I, th- I don't think it's as helpful here for me in Mexico to, to be, to have the CV I have, where in Colombia did feel more of an advantage for sure. Well, fuck you. <laughs> I, I want to have that empathy with you, but I, it, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, exactly. I'm perfectly fine with it. It's the situation I got myself into. So there we go. <laughs> all right. Now, uh, help me out, first of all, because my um, tact is pretty low. So um, I can have empathy with you on that. My tact is also quite low. So <laughs> Okay, great. All right. So Latin art, like, okay, when I was in school, it, we had it like there was Central American art, there was South American art, and they sort of separated that way. And of course, then there was like pre Columbian and, you know, all these different terminologies and stuff. What would be the appropriate term right now for contemporary art made in Central or South America? There's probably somebody that can answer that question better for you, but I would just say Latin American art. It's just kind of a blanket term. I mean, you can break it down from there, but when I see articles about this area of the world, it just tends to to reference it as Latin American art, or I'm listed as a juror, let's say on pre-picte, and it's probably mispronouncing that, but it's, you know, it says like Latin America or something. It seems to be how people denominate the region from outside. And actually, I think from within inside in Spanish as well, people would refer to the broader the broader region that way. I mean, you could break it down to South American or Central American or Mexican or Colombian, but I would say that's the blanket term. Living where you were in Colombia, which is which is Medellin, which is not as let's say affluent as where you were raised in America or even you know a lot of sort of the American larger cities, and then to go to Mexico City, the question I have is not about that, but it, that's sort of setting the the basis for it. I find in America that photographers are really arrogant about their equipment. They're like, oh, yeah, I got the lens with the red ring around it, or I've got these really expensive strobe lights and the biggest megapixel blah, blah, blah. Um, it, do you see a difference in that sort of attitude towards sort of, uh, you know, comparative equipment uh judging between photographers in other countries not that much i think it depends a little bit on the strata of photographer you find 
I mean, it's every semester at the university, you know, I've got my classes and there's always like one kid in the back that's the first day is asking about lenses or, so, you know, so there's always the gearhead. There's always somebody that's interested in equipment, but I would say generally, you know, especially let's say in Medellin, which I can speak about better, just with having spent a lot more time there. I don't, I don't find equipment to be really a central conversation very much. I actually, I think a lot of the conversations revolve around the interests of your podcast and, and, and some of your questions about like, how do I make contacts? How do I get in the world? How do I get my work seen? How do I take part in a lot of larger conversation? How do you meet so-and-so? So I think a lot of it is just strategy. I mean, you're living in that part of the world. Let's say you don't speak English. Let's say your, your budget is low for equipment. Let's say your social contacts are are minimal, like how do you grow a career? That tends to be the line of conversation. And I think actually like one of the great services of this podcast in terms of like trying to talk with people involved with the industry and answering that question more broadly for people trying to find their way forward. Go ahead. (laughs) You can cut and paste that as your like podcast intro. Thank you very much. (laughs) But I, you know, maybe I think Columbia is very segregated between photography world. So the photojournalists are, are one community. The art photographers are another community. There's a, a role of like art educators that I think form like a different group. And so maybe the, I think the photojournalists tend to be the ones most up on equipment, sit around at the bar and, and talk lenses, but it's not my world. It's not one I'm necessarily interested in. It's like, you know, that student that I was saying is always in the class is the one I'm always afraid of. You know, some somebody can ask me existential questions about photography and life and I can go on for days. But somebody asked me about, you know, the best new Nikon lens and my eyes glaze over. It's just like the least of my photographic passions. Oh, no, I was going to say every semester I get a student that's always like, I shot this at f22 and that's the largest aperture it should have the largest depth of field why is everything not in focus and i'm always like <laughs> because that's not the prime aperture for that particular lens. like and i have to keep up with all this stuff like the, it's yeah. really hard as a professor that like the students quite honestly know more about the newest equipment than i do like i know the basic concepts of cameras lenses sensors all that kind of stuff but like i have no idea the newest technology so like I'm always having to send them like, hey, uh, here's a great YouTube video that goes through that issue. Like, go watch that. Because like, I, yeah. I don't have the time to keep up with all the new technologies that are out there. It's insane. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, I feel like, you know, I'll do a little push where I'll watch some YouTube videos, look at a few sites, catch up on what's new. And then I'll have that student in class and I'll realize, you know, I feel like I'm up to date and I'll realize I did that five years ago. And <laughs> like that's a new, an entire generation. I got to go and do that again. Ah, shit. The other thing I find is, is that in different areas, different equipment is available. It's also named different things in like Europe versus America versus like in, in Asia, they even name things differently as well. But they're, but also they had like, have, uh, you know, uh, different brands are more popular, I'd say kind of like, mm-hmm. like I noticed in, in the United Arab Emirates, Nikon was like 
far far better publicity like they ran advertisements and stuff and canon had a very low profile whereas mm -hmm. where i went to school in san francisco it you know canon was everybody's stuff nobody even talked about nikon so they, yeah. I, it's very interesting how there's very much a regional nature of like which equipment is sort of i mean of course like is always the best we know that but you know beyond that yeah, Columbia's definitely has that with Fuji, actually. Fuji has a, a program, I think it's called like X Photographers, Fuji X Photographers. And so they've invited in uh, a handful of photographers who have an outsized weight in the art photography community and have a lot of kind of students that are interested in their work. And so I'm sure that generates a lot of sales for them. So Fuji is actually, I would say, the dominant presence in terms of at least the uh, promotion i'm not sure about sales but at least in terms of visibility in colombia we'll say like i got to a point at, a, at about let's see how long ago was it well i mean technically i haven't owned a camera in nine or ten years now because I, the the technologies keep upgrading so fast and so and they're so expensive to keep upgrading that i just finally said fuck it i'm just going to rent when i want to do a shoot instead of own because it's a waste of my money because i'll go out and i'll buy some really expensive equipment it'll sit in my studio for 20 days out of the month maybe i'll use it 10 days of the month and that's just not worth it i could just as easily rent it and quite honestly when i rent i can just literally tack the receipt onto the the bill for whoever's hiring me for that thing and say there you go pay and i don't even have to pay for that like i find these days with digital photography i feel i see no need to necessarily own your own equipment unless of course you have like a professional studio and you're shooting six days a week five days a week whatever yeah i've had a, what is the same camera now for years it's a nikon or at least digital camera nikon d eight, 10, something like that, which I'm sure is a couple of generations old at this point, but sort of a similar strategy. It's just, it's not worth my money to upgrade given that I don't do a lot of editorial work and it, it, it suits my needs. I'm not sure next time I have to make a purchase if I'll up for another body that expensive or maybe go a little bit more the route that you're, you're saying, kind of pick and choose how I get cameras and from where based on what I need. Well, that's the other beauty of doing the rental thing. Cause like, if I have a client that says, Hey, I want to do a billboard. Don't get me wrong. I've never had a client that says that, but theoretically, if I had a client that said, I want to do a billboard, I could go rent, you know, a Hasselblad or whatever, you know, highest megapixel thing on the market versus if somebody says, Hey, I just want you to come do corporate headshots in our office for our newsletter. Well, then I can just go get some, you know, mid-grade Canon lens or Nikon lens and be per or camera and be perfectly fine with that. So it actually allows me the freedom to sort of choose what equipment I want to rent depending on the need of the client. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. Which, don't get me wrong, I don't really do a lot of client work. I, I'm using this as a, as a me metaphor. <laughs> Similarly, <laughs> I'm so bad with that. I'm using yeah. it as an example. Yeah, I mean, I've had the same equipment layout for years, and I'm not going to change it anytime soon. It suits my needs. I'm doing a lot of work on the computer at this point between writing and working with family archives and images that I produced years ago. Family archives. I'm fascinated. I'm, I had a death recently in my family, and so I'm very much into like family genealogy and looking through old photos and things like this. And I'm fascinated because, okay, I'm going to say I'm fascinated because I think it's really amazing. 
okay, I love looking at old family photos and I know, and I even have a collection of photos that I bought on like eBay and bought at yard sales and estate sales. I love old photos and I keep thinking there'll be a project I'll do with it. And I never do it because I find them to be so precious. I don't want to damage them. So, mm -hmm. And I've also seen a lot of projects where people do these things where they like, oh, this is my family history and blah, blah. And they're generally not very good. Like, I, like they just don't, push it far enough to make it really compelling. Like, and so like, and of course there are so many people doing that these days that it's like, what can I add new to that sort of vocabulary of working with, you know, old family photos? How do you feel about that? Yeah. I mean, I was talking with one of my students the other day and she doesn't know that I'm currently working on a, project family focused uh, and she said something like oh you know like everyone around me is making these family projects i can't stand them they're all horrible and i was like ah oh, shit <laughs> i've got one i've just invested the last year in going on so uh, sorry I mean, if i insulted you <laughs> no I, I haven't uh, seen the project it may be magnificent <laughs> so the, the last i guess not the last but the second to last book that i published is called ghost guest and it is the family story of a cousin of mine who disappeared in an airplane. And I think part of the way around making it solipsistic and self-indulgent, not that I feel I need to defend that. I think that, you know, if you need to make a project like that, you make it and whatever rationales you have for that are fine. But just in terms of connecting to a broader audience, I think two things. One is that that event, I think, serves as a conversation around free fall, a conversation around kind of losing yourself in the midst of your path. He flew into a storm, my cousin flew into a storm and got spatially disoriented. And I think that idea of spatial disorientation is what the book is about and kind of losing yourself in the midst of your life in terms of path, in terms of where you want to be, how you want to get there. And so by trying to broaden the conversation, hopefully it moves out of squarely being a family conversation and into questions. Uh, I think a lot of people feel, especially within the arts, of like questioning your path, trying to see if like this is viable and, and trying to give it a little bit more traction. It's also an image text project. So the text also, I think, tries to forward conversations of culture, technology, context, and place the specific event within those contexts. And then the project that I'm currently working on similarly is image and text and tries to address questions of the overlap between living with mental illness, religion, and identity. And it's the story of my father kind of played out through family archives and conversations. So yeah, that's my attempt to try to short circuit that line of critique is to use the familiar to talk to the general and to talk to a, a broader kind of trends and I think experiences of living that a lot of people have in, in today and kind of a contemporary context. Okay, sorry, I was laughing. I apologize that I was laughing, but I was laughing because my father's a minister um, and we have mental illness in our family. So that's why I'm sort of like, hey, that sounds really familiar. <laughs> so yeah, my, my, my father is a minister and we have mental illness in our family. My father was Episcopal. What was yours? Congregational. 
But yeah, I mean, the project is called Man is a Creature that Obeys a Creature that Wants. And that'll be hopefully the next project that, that I publish. And it takes on that those questions. I mean, like, how do you construct yourself? How is yourself constructed? And it draws upon my father's kind of upbringing in the South, the dynamics with his parents, uh, his movement from a Marxist to a minister, and trying to kind of decouple those threads and understand them and, and how they're woven together to create a sense of self and also a sense of crisis that he arrived to in terms of some episodes of uh, a diagnosis of massive depression is, is the official diagnosis. So what is it about our society that has these incredible rates of depression? That's how I try to abstract my father's story into a conversation that's hopefully more generally interesting. It's like, you know, in the West, we're as wealthy as we've ever been. We have as much opportunity as we could want, or not everyone, but generally speaking, compared with the rest of the world. And so why do we have the highest rates of suicide, the highest rates of depression? That's the question I want to kind of look at through the lens of my father's story. That's my way of speaking about it with any authority, because to try to take it on abstractly, I think I'd feel a little bit anchorless in terms of how to approach it so okay well you brought up a really interesting thing that i have a uh eh, interesting uh text and image uh you mentioned that you're sort of work. don't get me wrong i've seen some amazing series of works done with text and image i mean i grew up with um oh fuck what's his name jim goldberg well, mm -hmm. raised with wolves or raised by wolves um, you know, that kind of work, Dwayne Michaels, um, a bunch of the other sort of people of that, that genre and that time period. So like, I do appreciate it, but I find sometimes it's a bit difficult, but also along with that, like you say that you do writing. So like you, mm -hmm. you know, you are sort of an, uh, an author of some sort. So the whole nature of sort of working text and image, I find is a very difficult thing to do because a lot of people will say, well, why didn't you put the text in the photos? Or why did you even add the photos if you could just say it all in text? So it's a very difficult balance to find that right amount of quality images with quality text that doesn't make it so that you could have put one into the other. Yeah, I, that's that's the case, I think. I feel, I mean, photography for me is a poetic way of speaking. I don't think it speaks to concrete issues very well. I mean, I think that's a long, under, uh, long-standing conversation photography going back to Sharkovsky's kind of denial that Margaret Bork White could create some photo essay of you know the end of World War II that would have any coherence or meaning. Because revolving also another project around a Spanish village, I think those were kind of projects that he just kind of dismissed as having any documentary authority. And I think there's been a long kind of understanding that, or a long conversation around the limits of photography to speak concretely. And I think the questions that I'm interested in have brought text into the process because that's the way I think I can get them answered. And so uh, unlike maybe a lot of photographers, I don't have a way of making images. I don't have a way of making work. I think I begin with questions and curiosities that lead themselves to an aesthetic response. And so each of my books is fairly distinct in terms of the superficial kind of glance at the book. Like they're, they're just very different. I think there may be some more commonalities at a deeper level between them, 
but they end up looking quite different because for me, it's a logic that stems from the, the initial questions behind the work. So the text allows a more direct line assault on those curiosities and questions. And the photographs, for me, at least within the last couple of projects, create atmosphere and texture. And to kind of circle back to your very first question, besides my name, my dad is one of the most avid readers I've ever met. Like he's that guy in the supermarket line with like a dog-eared paperback in his back pocket and he pulls it out when he's got five minutes. And he's also written a couple memoirs about his experience living with mental illness. And then on the other side, my mom was an amateur photographer, is an amateur photographer, amateur in the sense of being serious about it and showing works in like coffee shops, hospital hallways. Her brother was also quite interested in photography and their father, my, my grandfather, you know, was that guy always taking pictures on family trips and always making family videos. I and mean, every picture of him from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he's got a video camera in his hand. And I hated it. Like, I remember being a kid and barreling down the stairs for my Christmas presents and my grandpa making us walk all the way back upstairs and redoing it and recreating it so he could take his video. And there's that side also. And so the text side from my dad and the, the the photo side from my mom, I think makes sense for me. Like it feels like I'm, this is actually a recent insight of mine into my own practice, like understanding that there's a connection to that. And I'm also actually going through this period of really being interested in family photographs, really being interested in genealogy, I think I'm getting to that age. And part of that experience, I think, is realizing that some of the things in my life that felt that they'd grown out of my own personal experiences apart from my family are actually deeply embedded in the roots of family and in the place I grew up in. And that idea of combining writing and text is part of it. To go back to the original question, I think that for me, there's a balance there that's hard to strike. I think it's hard to let the photographs not just be illustrative because the text draws attention so strongly. I think the response of a lot of people is to cut text down. You know, if you look at the winners of the Photo Text All Award, they tend to be books with an incredibly short amount of text. I think in part just because of the nature of jury systems. If you want to go back to juries, we could talk a little bit more about this. But you give jurors 200 photo text books to review in two days, they're not going to get deeply involved in your novella with some photographs. They're going to tend to choose books that have 20 words total in, in 60 photographs. And that is the book that they'll actually, you know, give some attention to just by the nature of, of these, of the spaces of time they're given to review and a lot of material. Don't get me wrong. I am no way being critical of your work. I just want to be clear. I'm just being like, okay, give me, uh, let me give you a backstory. Sure. When I was at the Corcoran in my undergrad, I remember putting up a, a set of work and I put up these images and they were these like ethereal, like universal images, like, oh, everybody will understand. And then I put some text with it. And my teacher just chastised me to no end saying, using text in that way is a crutch because I didn't put the work into putting the story in the photo. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. In hindsight, he was completely right. At the time, I was furious, but he was completely right in hindsight. 
and and I had the chance to apologize to him to, about a decade later when I saw him again. And then I also had, and then I, even in my own master's thesis, I did text and images. So like I understand this process and I pained over the, the balance of like trying to find the right quality as you know, visceral emotive expression of an image to combine with a, a piece of text. And it's incredibly difficult to do that. Well, I have seen many people do it mediocre. I've seen a few people do it phenomenally, but it, I, and I don't know what that trick is that makes it so that it really works well. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> so first I didn't, I, you know, I didn't take it as criticism or just, I don't want to be led by the question to deny some uh, parts of my work or, you know, just be upfront that it's, it is what it is about. And these are questions I'm interested in. And no, I don't know what it's about, in part because I don't think there's a formulaic answer I could provide. I, I wish I could for all listeners just kind of lay out the five steps for making great image text projects. But I'm looking for an Excel spreadsheet with a step-by-step -step process. That's what I want. <laughs> like nobody seems to be able to give it to me. I can sell you that magic in a bottle for $100. You want to send it over? I'll, I know I'll send plenty of people you. online that just <laughs> try to sell those things, yes. Yeah. So I... I think, again, the structure of the project kind of demands a balance between text and image. I think there's some that just by the story they want to tell need to be a little more text heavy. And there are others that need just a little bit of guidance from text and that the image is really what dominates. I mean, I see it a little bit maybe like the two sides of reins of a horse or something where it's like you pull too hard on the text and you kind of go off in, in a direction you don't want. You pull too hard on the image, it goes another way. And so there's a balancing point. But the harder question is like the balancing point changes based on the project and what it needs to be. And understanding that I think is baked into the process of making the work and spending a lot of time with it. My last couple of projects have been fairly text heavy because they're quite narrative in their scope. And so images are there, but they try to be a second line, a parallel, not duplicating information, but kind of reinforcing mood, reinforcing a sense of space where the, the book is happening within, but trying not to just simply illustrate or simply duplicate material that's already in the text itself. And for me, I think that balancing point generally has to do with that question of resonance between image and text and trying not to illustrate or duplicate content. Okay. Now I'm also interested, how do you come up with your projects? I have a, a Word document, which I put ideas in, and I've got enough project ideas for two lifetimes. 90% of them are horrible ideas, but they're all there. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll go through and edit it down. I mean, one of the things about photography, going back to my origins in painting, is painting, just by the time required for making every individual object, it's harder to juggle between different projects at once. Whereas with photography, you can have a number of things bubbling up at once. And I tend to work on like a front burner, back burner project system where I've got like one or two that are front burner and that I'm actively like putting time and effort into, but a couple on the back burner too that are there. I mean, if I kind of 
run into a place where I need to step away from a project and come back to it with fresh eyes to be able to see what else it needs. I'll move it to the back burner and pull something up to the front burner. And that's helpful also because there are a lot of things, let's say I'm looking through old photographs for a project. If I have a couple of things going at once, I can look for photographs for two or three projects at once. And I think it's a more efficient process than doing that every time I sit down and work on something new to bring back probably an overused idea of how photographers work. I think you could kind of think of ourselves as, as fishermen and architect architects that like to have a full blueprint before they're going to make a project. They want to know, they investigate, they do the reading. I'm not that type of photographer. I'm much more the fisherman that makes a lot of images and afterwards looks at what I catch and where the threads, where the connections, how do you make something from those materials? And it, I've moved farther along in my career, I cast that net more widely. So not only is it my own archives and photographs I make, but it also includes family photographs, media images, things I find online, and now text. It's all part of what gets caught in that, that net. And then seeing how it combines is really what I do as a, an artist. And I think maybe what a lot of people are doing now, which has a lot more to do with the photographer's editor and less so the photographer's photographer. Well, that's what I was sort of ask is like, I feel like with the amount of exposure that I have to the sheer volume of photography in the world right now, I feel like to a certain extent, like I don't know what I can add new to it. So it's a really like, you know, social media, Instagram, all these kinds of Facebook, all these things has made it. So like, I, I don't know what else I can offer in, in that specific finite realm of, of creating images for whatever reason. So like, I kind of walked away from it. As I said, I don't own a camera and I do different styles of work because I, I, it's, I feel bad saying like it's too easy, but it's not that it's too easy. It's too prevalent. There, there's, there are so many photographers in the world already making beautiful images. I don't know what I can add to that. I agree with that. And I think a lot of photographers are coming around to that idea that, that you know, if you think of images like a word or like a, a phrase, there's so many words and phrases out there that we can put together to tell a story. And the need isn't for more new words. The need is for somebody to go in and work with these materials and give them form and, and significance and structure. I think, I mean, I make new images. I like the act. I actually went out last night on my bike and went back to this place I'd seen the other day and made some photographs. But it's less and less a part of the practice that I show, maybe beyond Instagram, just for fun. Like I, I don't have any new project ideas that revolve around the idea of creating new photographs. I have a longstanding body of work of medium format photographs of Medellin that will see the light of day as a book later this year. And I'll continue to shoot for that when I go back there next month. But I think once that project is closed, that might be the last that I do in that mode of making work. Again, to return to the idea that questions lead to decisions about technique and cameras and aesthetics, maybe there'll be some things that I get interested in the future that need new images made, but generally that's not where I'm at. And part of that idea of, as you're saying, I think there's, it is an era where there's an incredible amount of good photography being made, a lot of incredible photo books. And so 
I don't think that what I need to do is to be creating more images in that style right now. Uh, it's, it's just not where my interest is. I think what I'm interested in is more the editing side of, of making. Okay, you brought it up a couple times, book publishing. I'm incredibly okay. envious. You have books. I don't have books. So uh, right off the bat, I'm envious. You have a book. I want a book. I mean, every photographer wants to have a book of their work. So mm -hmm. how did that come about? Did you pitch it? I mean, I saw that you won some awards for it at one point, like the dummy awards. So like, mm -hmm. did that help? Did that introduce you to people? Like, so what was the process for you of like, you, did you make a book and then submit it to somebody or did somebody come to you and say, Hey, would you like to make a book? And then you came up with something like, how did that work for you? So the way that it happened for me is that I worked with a press on the first several books that I did. It's the same press. So it's all revolving around the same people. This later this year, I'll be publishing with a new press and it's been a different experience, but the backstory is I started working on Ghost Guess with my collaborator, Paul Kwiatkowski, and we started shopping it like a lot of people do by sending it to friends of friends, contacts in the publishing world. This is going back to the idea of social capital and just having somebody that's willing to pass your PDF along. We had a an agreement to publish it with the European press and the, the guy essentially ghosted us and disappeared at a certain point. So we went back to the drawing board and I was at a book fair in Medellin and started talking with a guy, Juan David Diaz of a press called Mesa Standard, which is a Medellin based press that focused mostly, mostly on architectural and graphic design books. And Juan David is a graphic designer and his partner, Miguel Mesa, has an architectural background. And they were interested in beginning a line of photo books. And so we had a meeting, you know, I met them at this book fair. We had a meeting where I showed them the work that became Ghost Guest. And I also showed them some other work of mine for context, just to give them a sense of myself as an artist. And I came back a week later and they said, you know, we'd, we'd like to do Ghost Guest. And actually looking at your other work that you showed us for context, we have a second book we want to put together, which is called Irida y Fuente from this work. And so those two initial books came out of a, a book fair introduction and a little bit right place, right time after having sent the book out to a lot of European and US presses and having it be selected, as you're saying, as an award winner, as a book dummy, but still is, you know, not getting published. And so we went with this press in Colombia and it had a lot of advantages on the financial side. It was relatively cheap to produce. I think it's probably 90% of the quality for 20% of the price, something like that. Friends that have put tens of thousands of dollars in the photo books and Irina Fuente, I didn't put any money in. Ghost guests, Paul and I put in a little bit of money and were given a large cut of the run to sell and make the money back, which we've essentially done. So I think in terms of publishing, people should look beyond the first string of ideas you have, which would tend to be the bigger name, US and European presses. There are a lot of presses out there in the world that will reduce your financial burden or eliminate it completely. And so I then did a third book with them called Punto de Vista, which is a little bit less my book, a little bit more collaboration in the sense that they use my photograph in Medellin as a departure to invite 
think there's about 45 writers and they are everyone from Hector Lad Faciolince, who's a well-known Colombian writer, to poets who graduated from the university yesterday, to biologists, to a little bit of everybody from the city of Medellin to select one of the photographs to respond to and talk about the city through my work. So I didn't do much beyond just kind of handing them the files. And that is the kind of story of getting those books published. And then the book I have coming out later this year, which I don't think has been announced, so I probably shouldn't talk too much on the specifics is with a New York based press exclusive here. On the podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to, yeah, I know it sounds, I know how that sounds and I'm trying not to sound that way, but I just don't know if, if the publisher should be interested in that information being out yet, but that just came from when I left graduate school, I had a show in a, as part of a group show in Brooklyn and the publisher has been somebody I've had as a contact since then. And I started just kind of showing him the work and he'd asked for seeing more work and eventually got the invitation to publish with him. So I think like a lot of, I'm, I'm trying to like move back a little bit from specifics on the questions now to see if I can incorporate some of my broader ideas before we end. <laughs> but one of them would be that, you know, see if you can find a side door and not necessarily stand in line at the front door with a lot of these questions about portfolio reviews and career decisions. I think most of the things that have happened to me in my so-called photography career have been genuine friendships, people that I've met, keeping in contact with people, looking for, I think one of the better friendships and connections I have in photography happened because I started talking with the wife of a well-known photographer at a gallery opening. And at a certain point she was like, oh yeah, you should come and have coffee with us tomorrow. And that became a friendship, which I really value. And so rather than standing in line with 50 people waiting for this photographer's autograph, I just ended up talking with his wife on the side and it became a friendship. And, you know, I think that's the way things happen. I think people will see very transparently your, your motives with things. So if you approach people trying to figure out what you can get from them it's not or like trying to get yourself ahead that's not necessarily going to end where you want it and i think one point of mine i think generally would be yeah look look for the side door instead of standing in line at the front door and another one would be maybe a little bit the reverse of what you would think which would be rather than trying to figure out how you can get things from people, see what you can offer them. And I think that was part of, I backed into that idea a little bit with Phototazo where I started it as an NGO and for trying to help some students out with some gear. But by, I think, kind of opening a space for photographers to be interviewed a little bit like we're doing now and, and kind of providing the space for community and for things to happen, it ended up creating a lot of context and a lot of things that have happened to me subsequently have been because you know I interviewed a photographer and they happen to live in a city where I am a lot and so get to meet people or, or, or sit down in real life for coffee or a beer and then the next time you're in town the friendship grows and so by kind of offering that initial space to like showcase other people's work it's actually provided friendships that have eventually offered me opportunities as well. That's my hope through this podcast. I hope to make <laughs> friends. Yeah. Well, I don't know why you invited me. I'm not sure what I can offer you, but I, I'm happy to do so if I can. <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of friends. so. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I was just going to tack on one of my other, my third and last big idea here, which is that it's it's connected to this last point I was making, that the, the art scene is complicated. It, it's it's fairly cliquish. It's fairly built inwards. You go to these events, it feels like a big high school. There's the popular group, the not popular group, the people who are invited to the after party, the people that aren't. And I, I think what I want to say along those lines is like not to turn people away from the art scene. I think there are great people. It's just the scene that is complicated. Rather than trying to push people away from the art scene, I think I want to push people back towards their art and like make the work solid, make it really good, you know, stay out of the spotlight earlier in your career as long as you can so you can fully kind of develop your work. I think one of the worst things I see happen to my students is them getting attention earlier in their career. And all of a sudden they're trying to placate dealers, curators. They feel like, you know, you get a pat on the back. What do you do? You start trying to get that pat on the back again. So you start making the same work, the same work, the same work. And so um, trying to go back to your work and like make that as strong as you can before you take that step out and start developing those kind of side door friendships and connections, offering a space maybe to a community, contributing to the community and letting that lead you forwards is kind of my summation of how I would advise younger photographers to move forwards. I love that you offered advice before me even asking the question of advice, which is what I do at the end. It's great. I've listened to a few of your podcasts, so I might be forwarding I appreciate it. It's fabulous. Okay. But there's one last question. We put a pin in like the whole jurying process. Was there anything more you wanted to sort of say about that process? Yeah, I mean, mean, we talked a little bit, I guess, of how I got involved, but not so much on the nuts and bolts of applying. So let's get into that. Maybe, you know, give some specific advice to your listeners. I think that statements are good very short. I think, especially, you know, even for PhotoLucid, I'm looking at 200 portfolios. And I think, you know, the recommended time for reviewing is something like, I don't, it's something like six hours, maybe, or, or even less, maybe four hours. And so if you write an essay, I'm not, Hold on, I, slow I'm down. just not able to wait, read wait, it. Wait, 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 you're to look through yeah. 200 portfolios in four hours. Something like that. And there's no time that they, I mean, there's not a clock on that they put, but in the instructions for jurors, they give that guideline, at least they used to, I haven't looked at the guidelines for a few years now, but I think what they're doing there is trying to be respectful of the juror's time and give some sort of a guideline for how they're going to get through 200 portfolios without taking up two weeks of their professional life. And so they kind of make a loose recommendation. And so if there's an essay for an artist statement, it's just, I mean, you open it, you click on it, it's just like, oof, you know, that's a, that's a lot of reading that I need to do. And so I think the, to be honest, I think the general process is look at the work first. The first images should be solid, probably the best images you have. Try to shuffle in the less strong images towards the middle to the latter part and then end strong as well. Because I think what happens if you're looking at hundreds of portfolios, you click on three images. If they're not good, you just, you're not going to look at the next seven. You already, your mind starts to form conclusions. I would, I would move away from the sort of kind of sophisticated buildups that you might find in your photo book maquette, the kind of subtle gestures at the beginning to get to some crescendo. No, hit them up at the beginning with the strongest stuff, visually impactful, subtlety and grace tends to get lost. And then 
a short statement. I think that's kind of what I see do well in these competitions. What about titles? Titles for specific images? Yes. Close to useless in terms of okay. like <laughs> during. I mean, again, there's levels. So I think that's in a broader sense. And then I think as you start to get to your to portfolios that you're really considering making the cut for the next round, then yeah, you're going to maybe read some fuller, longer statements, look at titles, but that only comes in for, I would say, a smaller percentage. It's just too much material. Juriors are generally asked for way too much material. 200 is actually not a lot compared. There's another one that I was on that I think they gave us 400 portfolios to go through. And the general expectation was to give them enough time to understand them and judge them. And that's a lot of time. And so you start making shortcuts, even if you don't want to. And the shortcuts are, yeah, look at the first few images. They're not great. You move on. You open a statement, it seven paragraphs. You're not going to read the whole thing. You read the first few sentences. Titles on images, not necessary. And I hate to be cynical about things, but that's how it works. Okay. Photographers, I find that they fall into one of two realms. Oftentimes they're very pompous with their artist statements, like, you know, like Freudian, Kantian, mythology, Greek, whatever bullshit. Or they fall, or, well, I shouldn't say, so there's three. The second one would be they're very technical. They're like, this was shot with a Hasselblad in the late afternoon during the sunset. I was like, you know, just like super, super technical, like at this aperture on this shutter speed with this ISO, like who the fuck cares? Or they're actually really good at it. And the problem is, is that like, there's no quantifiable, again, like no Excel spreadsheet that can give me a step-by-step -step thing of how to write a good artist statement because every project is unique and every project needs its own thing. But like, you want to be engaged, but that's the hardest thing to do is to, because I mean, everybody's attention span is so short. I mean, when it comes to like jurying, like you're trying to go through so many things so quickly, you need something to capture their, their attention, which is really hard to do these days. As, as far as artist statements, I think the recipe is actually kind of simple. They should be short and they should leave the reader with more excitement to see the work after they've read it than they had it before, which is to say, don't explain the work. Don't say everything that it's about, you know, charge the air a little bit with some ideas, a little bit of electricity there. Don't tell me about your lenses. Don't tell me about Kant. Lay it out from a personal perspective and lead me in like a, a little bit of a kind of a prologue or a, or a foreshadowing and get me excited about the work. And I think heavy handed sinks the ship real quick. And on the other hand, I think really flippant doesn't work either. I have a, I remember looking at a portfolio of actually a photographer that I know, and she's a great photographer, but as I got the work as a, a juror and just kind of looked at the statement, it was trying to be cute and funny and just kind of undercut everything. And it didn't, it didn't resonate well. And although she's a really good photographer, actually, didn't make the cut. And I think actually the, the statement in that case may have had something to do with it. I find that humor almost never translates because you're also talking cross-culturally, cross-generationally, cross-gender. There's so many ways that any attempt at humor can easily miss the mark. Yeah. I mean, most jurors are pretty tone deaf to, to, to the humor, I think, in part because it's just written on a page and you you know, this person I'm mentioning is quirky and fun and great, 
but it doesn't translate as an art artist statement. It just wasn't a good step for the work uh, or a good introduction. It just made it feel like the artist wasn't taking themselves or the work seriously. And so why should the juror take it seriously? So yeah, I would agree with that for sure. The humor is not, doesn't work. Can you give me three artists that are out in the world right now that you admire or respect that you think that maybe people should pay a little bit more attention to? So the first thing I would say is kind of a response is to steal a line from Paul Kwiatkowski, my collaborator and ghost guest, somebody that asked him, you know, given that he's a photographer and writer, like I'm a photographer and writer. So which is your first love, photography or writing? And his response was reading. And so I think that's kind of my take on this. So I'm going to give you one photographer, but also two writers. I'm not a guy that watches a lot of YouTube lectures by other photographers. I'm not a guy who reads, you know, old art history essays from pulled from 70s apertures. I'm more kind of the person that's interested in movies and literature and whatever else I can get my hands on music. So there's a Colombian photographer named Juanita Escobar. And she's fantastic. She's a photographer that works a lot in Los Llanos from in, in, in Eastern Colombia and has lived out there for a very long time and photographs the life there, which is a, has a very particular culture. It's a little bit like the, the, the cowboy world. And she's a very strong photographer. I'm bad with book titles. She has a new book out that I can't remember the title of. And then her book before that was called Jano, and it was published by a press in Peru. And I'm actually not sure if it's pronounced K-W-Y or Kwai, like if you actually pronounce the letters. Or but both books are great, and she's an amazing photographer. The second recommendation, I'm going to go with two Colombian writers. The first is Hector Rod Faciolince that I mentioned earlier, and he has a book that's translated into English as Oblivion. And... It is a book about a father-son relationship, but it's also just a look into kind of the, the devastation of a society through narco wars and the culture of Medellin in the 70s and 80s. And it's just a fantastic writer. And I think for somebody interested in doing family-type projects and looking how text can illuminate relationships within a family, I mean, it's one of the best books I know. And the last is just a writer who tells great stories that you can read in a thousand page book and wish there was more. And that is Alvaro Mutis. And he has a book, again, I'm bad with titles, but it's, I believe, The Adventures and Misadventures of Mackerel in English. And it's a very long book, but it's fantastic. When I have conversations with friends in Colombia and they ask me about favorite Colombian writers, I always say I like Mutis more than I like Garcia Marquez, which always raises eyebrows or, you know, gets the gloves thrown on the ground in a, in a challenge to a duel based on who, you know, depending on who I'm talking about. But Mutis is my favorite Colombian writer. That book in particular has a lot of laugh out loud moments. It's a profound insight into Colombian culture. And it's the type of book you just fall into and wish that there was more after a thousand pages. Marvelous. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for the invitation. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. If you enjoy this podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please also tell your friends to listen and subscribe. 
You can listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If there's a professional in the art world that you admire or respect and that you'd like to hear me have a conversation with, please send me a message through Instagram and I will do everything in my power to get them as a guest on the podcast. Additionally, if you have any specific questions for future guests, like you want to know more about certificates of authenticity, art fairs, or how the social media algorithm works, send me those questions and I will ask the appropriate future guests for you. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram and tell your friends as well. In the near future, we will be starting a newsletter that we will be sending out. Not sure how frequently, but we will. So please sign up for that on our website, wisefoolpod.com. And no matter what you're doing right now, try to have fun doing it.